Well, um, it's very nice to be here again, ladies and gentlemen, talking about uh, medieval merchants, the city and um, their architecture. And those of you who uh, came to my last lecture, where I started off this subject, you will remember that um, I looked at the houses of London merchants from the 12th century to the late 14th century. So there's a really sort of early period. But this evening, I want to move on into the 15th and 16th centuries. But as we saw last time, any attempt to try and paint a picture of how these merchants lived in the city was badly hindered by the fact that almost everything, all the physical evidence, all the buildings were either destroyed in 1666 or in later rebuilding, or of course, ultimately, by the uh, Blitz in the Second World War. Archaeology and building accounts and descriptions helped, as I showed last time, but there was nowhere you could go in London and see a medieval merchant's house. Well, I'm afraid things are little better in the period we are looking at this evening. But we must remember that the Great Fire didn't quite destroy the whole city, as you see here, this well-known print, because the flames didn't reach uh, this area around here, and in particular didn't reach this uh, area up here, um, the area um, uh, um, along um, Bishopsgate. And uh, if we uh, focus on the areas where the Great Fire didn't reach, we find that there are some crumbs of information, in fact, more than crumbs, about the later architecture of the mercantile classes, about the mer merchants themselves, and how they fitted into society as a whole. So this is um, Bishopsgate going up here on the copper plate map. Um, here's Leadenhall down here, um, just the beginnings of Bishopsgate, obviously going up to the actual gate itself. Um, and uh, Bishopsgate uh, goes out eastwards, joins up with all the main roads going out to East Anglia. It was a very convenient spot for the merchants to build their houses. Obviously, um, in the middle of the city was St Paul's Cathedral, a popular commercial rendezvous, but um, not far away was, was, was Cheapside, um, the main shopping street, uh, where the traders uh, also acted as bankers, and closer still was um, the recently uh, founded Royal Exchange um, at Cornhill in, in Elizabeth's reign, where um, wholesale merchants traded and um, swapped news. And this um, whole corner of the city up here, as you can begin to see, was much less densely populated than this central area here. So if you were a merchant with um, a great deal of money, you um, uh, tended to hope to be able to build in this part of the city where you could have a little bit more space. And so, uh, actually, on Bishopsgate, we have evidence of three of the most splendid and important merchants' houses ever to be built in London. First of all, we have Sir Paul Pinder's mansion, the outstanding survival of a London timber-framed house built before the Great Fire. Now, of course, I'm showing you here um, a coloured print of it, but if you want to see Paul Pinder's house, you should go to the V&A, because that facade you see there is on display um, in their um, galleries. It was built around 1599 by Paul Pinder, who you see here. 
He was born in probably 1565 and he dies in 1650. He's a wealthy merchant. He's knighted in 1620 by James I. And his business activities enabled him to invest in speculative trading expeditions, loan large sums of money to Charles I, and contribute the absolutely colossal sum of £10,000 towards the repair of St Paul's Cathedral. However, the uh, problems that the country ran into in the 1640s and Charles I's inability to repay him some very big loans uh, left um, Pinder with massive debts which still remained uh, when he died. But in 1597, Pinder uh, uh, bought several properties um, on uh, Bishop's, uh, Bishopsgate without. So there's the wall of the city, the ditch, there is Bishopsgate itself. And um, he bought um, some properties um, just um, over here. And on uh, these, he built uh, a mansion with this famous, famous uh, street facade, three and a half stories high. And behind that, um, a garden that looked out over the open lands of Moorfields and um, Finsbury Fields. So you can see he gets gets all this um, space out the back. Um, And to the right of this, uh, there is a sort of gateway which um, uh, led down the side of the house and gave access to the area behind. Now, um, facades of several stories with these sort of jetted fronts weren't particularly rare in London in 1600, But Pinder's house was actually unusually large and this incredible facade was particularly striking. And the house was in fact grand enough to serve as the residence of Pietro Contarini, the Venetian ambassador to the court of St James in 1617-18. Contarini's chaplain described it as, and I quote, a very commodious mansion which had heretofore served as the residence of several former ambassadors. So not only um, this particular ambassador staying, but obviously other ones had been staying there too. Now, it doesn't look very big when you look at it on this um, uh, 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 view, but um, this view is very um, misleading uh, because it doesn't actually show the whole house. The whole house lies behind Bishopsgate. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a plan of it because it's all... Uh, uh, got rid of before that happens. Um, But the work of antiquarians did start to make um, a record of it. And this is um, a remarkable piece of survival. This is um, a a, a copy, an absolute copy taken from plaster moulds of one of the rooms in Paul Pinder's house. It was made by Lady Bailey and was taken to Leeds Castle in Kent. And that is where you can see the ceiling of Paul Pender's house, bizarrely, in the so-called heraldry room. And you can see um, it's a magnificent um, ceiling. So the work of um, antiquarians saved bits of the house, including the, the facade in, in the V&A and this, uh, um, this ceiling, but also made this record. And what this record shows is a record actually, uh, of Ludgate Prison, and not of Paul Pinder's house. But here is Bishopsgate Street, and here is the famous house. And actually, the house really um, contains all this um, uh, space here um, at the back, 
And this really is just the street facade. And what we will be seeing this evening is that these very large uh, merchants' houses very often had extremely modest uh, street front uh, expressions. Um, and really the, the size and magnificence um, lay behind the main thoroughfare. Now, um, although we know very little, uh, uh, actually, about Paul Pinder's house, apart from the famous front facade, we know quite a bit more um, about the slightly earlier house built within the city walls on the west side of Bishopsgate by Sir Thomas Gresham, the man to whom we owe the pleasure of sitting here this evening. Thank you very much, Sir Thomas. Uh, Gresham bought an acre of land um, on the west side of Bishopsgate. This is a huge amount of land in the city. And um, here we see Bishopsgate, and here we see the acre of land that um, Gresham uh, bought. And uh, I think it's interesting to note that the uh, Bishopsgate uh, facade is this tiny thing, rather like Paul Pinder's house, this little um, archway here. Uh, he actually owned a very big street frontage uh, on, on, on Broad Street here, but he chose not to make it the principal entrance to his house. And in fact, this is a range of almshouses built along here because the prestigious entrance where all the other top merchants were living was, was on Bishopsgate. So that's where his entrance actually um, was. Um, so this is William Morgan's map of 1682, um, by which stage his house, um, as you can see by the lettering here, had been turned into Gresham College. Hooray! Uh, you can see it also uh, just on the copper plate map. And uh, if you follow up Bishopsgate here, I think what you're looking at here is just, the, just off the top of the plate, um, uh, the, the, um, the, the house of uh, Sir Thomas Gresham. It was a very big house. And it was immortalised because, of course, on his death, it was left to Gresham College to be its headquarters. And in this state, it was engraved by George Virtue and published in Ward's Lives of the Professors of Gresham College, a book published in 1740, from which this uh, dates. Now, by then, many changes had taken place. But the key features of this original mansion can still be seen. And I'm a bit disappointed that this seems to have become very pixelated on this screen, so it's a little bit difficult to see. But when you go home and consult your own copy of Ward's Lives of the uh, Gresham Professors, published in 1740, you will see that um, up here, um, which is where Bishopsgate is, there is a little tiny gate and a little passageway leading to a courtyard that leads into the house itself. And the main house belonging to Gresham uh, in the Elizabethan period is here. This is the Great Hall. Here are the ancillary buildings. And this, of course, later on turns to be the college. And these are those almshouses along uh, Broad Street that I showed you on the map. Now, unfortunately, uh, although we have this wonderful uh, drawing, we don't have a plan of these rooms here. It'd be wonderful to have a plan of this, but we don't uh, have that, unfortunately. Uh, we know from looking at various um, deeds and uh, descriptions that there was indeed a great hall. We know that he had a long gallery. 
tempting to think that maybe the long gallery was along here looking over the gardens, but we don't know. But uh, 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 the, the fact is, is that although this was um, certainly uh, in the, the top two or three of the grandest houses of the Elizabethan merchants, we don't really know much about it. And so we get to where I want to get to this evening. Uh, we have to turn to a third house on Bishopsgate. And of this house, some parts still exist. And this, of course, is Crosby Place, or as it's known, Crosby Hall. This house was described by John Stowe in his Survey of London when he calls it of stone and timber, very large and very beautiful, and the highest at that time in London. Pretty high praise. And as it happens, the praise was probably not exaggerated, for, as we shall see, this was an extraordinary house. But first of all, where is Crosby Hall today? Well, I'm sure most people uh, in this room know that Crosby Hall is not in the city of London. It is now, in fact, in Chelsea. And this is the stone uh, hall which you um, see here. It uh, survived the Great Fire in that corner of the city which survived it. It survived various other perils, including an 18th century fire. Um, and eventually, the site uh, of Crosby Hall was bought by the Bank of India for redevelopment. And after a huge campaign, the bank agreed to pay to move Crosby Hall, stone by stone, uh, bulk by bulk, to a site in Chelsea that was um, given uh, by the London County Council. Moved to uh, Chelsea, uh, it was uh, um, remodelled by the architect Walter Godfrey, the arts and crafts architect, who added this um, additional accommodation here um, to accommodate the Federation of University Women. Uh, and it became a hall of residence for them, uh, they continued to occupy it until it was uh, purchased by the financier uh, Christopher Moran in 1989. Now, what Christopher Moran inherited uh, was uh, the great hall of the, um, of the 15th century house. Um, and as far as we can tell, and all Godfrey's notes survived, uh, the thing really was moved um, very, very carefully. And what we have there today, although this outer cladding uh, is mostly dating from the 1910s, um, everything else inside is very much the original, um, original building. But what the current owner has decided to do is to build a mansion around it uh, in 16th and 17th century architectural styles to try and put this uh, great hall back into some sort of context. And so today, when you look at it across the river, this is what you see. Uh, here is the river facade. Um, uh, here is the gable of the original great hall. And this uh, 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 remarkable sort of what looks like a sort of Jacobean facade is in fact this with big gables put on the top and the windows enlarged. So you have um, a, a, a Jacobean range here, you have a sort of early 16th century range here, and if you were to uh, sit in that window there and look out and take a photograph, that's what you would see. Uh, you would see this uh, facade uh, facing the river, 
um, built in the style of the 1520s. You'd steal this, this dining room facade built in the style of the 1570s, courtyard in the middle, and to the left, the original Great Hall. So, although we have what was almost certainly the greatest of the medieval merchant halls in London, it's very obviously not in the city, um, and it's very hard to get um, any, uh, any feeling of um, what it was like in its um, heyday. But before it was moved in 1910, it was already the most celebrated relic of mercantile architecture in London. And since uh, the late 18th century, it had been drawn and measured by antiquarians and architects. And so as well as this very precious surviving relic, the hall, we actually have a completely unique record of this very uh, remarkable house. But my starting point this evening is not the architecture of Crosby Place, but its founder, John Crosby. And here I show you the tomb of Sir John Crosby and his wife Agnes from a, a book called Sepulchral Monuments, printed in the um, 18th century. And this uh, monument you see here remains today in St. Helen's Bishopsgate, where you can still, um, if you're prepared to clamber across the tambourines and jump kits, um, get uh, uh, close to it in the church um, and admire it. Um, it is an absolute masterpiece of late 15th century alabaster carving. Here is Sir John on the right not dressed in his aldermanic robes, but lying in full plated armour, with his mantle gathered up over his right shoulder. He's bareheaded, and you can see his cropped hair, and underneath his head, uh, it's not a pillow, but that's his helmet. He doesn't carry a sword, but at his waist, which is fastened by a belt, is a dagger. And at his feet, which I couldn't photograph because there were too many tambourines in the way, um, uh, you can see when you go there, and it's really worth going in, and they're very, very easy and relaxed about letting you in uh, if the place is uh, locked, you ring on the doorbell, um, is this wonderful lion who's looking up and looking at him in the eye. So, um, he is in this tomb, and... The original tomb had a brass inscription around it, which is now lost. But this inscription originally encouraged people to pray for the soul of, and I quote, John Crosby Knight, alderman, and during a portion of his life, mayor of the staple of the town of Calais. Now, I think this tomb is one of the most fascinating things in the whole of the city of London. Here is the tomb of possibly the richest merchant of the middle of the 15th century, and he describes and depicts himself as a soldier, not as a merchant. Now, why is this? And what do you think it tells us about this incredible house that he built in Bishopsgate? Well, we don't know exactly when John Crosby was born, but we do know that he became a freeman of the grocer's company between 1452 and 1454. 
Now, you normally became uh, a freeman uh, when you were around 25 years old. And so Crosby was probably born sometime around 1427. The young Crosby was apprenticed to a successful grocer, a man called John Young. The details of his apprenticeship are lost, but apprentices from wealthy families, and we think Crosby came from one of those, normally paid a fee to their master and reimbursed the master for um, food and lodgings while he was an uh, an apprentice. Uh, It was normal for um, grocers to be in in apprenticeship for about a decade, after which uh, period uh, the training was declared over and the apprentice would buy their freedom for a fee. Crosby won his freedom of the company and his fee of three shillings and fourpence, payable on being sworn in, was entered into the grocer's ledger uh, of 1452 to 54. Now, the grocers had originally been called the pepperers because they were trading in pepper. But in recognition of the increasing diversity of the goods in which they traded, in the late 14th century, they changed their name to grocers. Their primary business was in spices, obviously pepper, but they also traded in fruit and generally sort of high-value raw materials such as wax, dyes, saltpetre and alum. Most of their trade was with the Mediterranean and the Iberian Peninsula, And goods from there arrived in London and were weighed on the Great Beam, a huge balance that used weights gauged in the heavy mercantile pound, the pound called the gross. And, of course, it was from this unit of measurement, the gross, that the company took their name, the grocers. So imported goods, um, which had been weighed in the beam, um, uh, were then traded across England and their ships, uh, returning to the Mediterranean, uh, were loaded up with English cloth and wool for export. This was an incredibly lucrative trade and one that made the grocers amongst the richest and most influential merchants in the city. Now, although John Crosby um, was apprenticed to one of the most successful merchants in the most prestigious company, He entered the city in around 1437, a time of profound economic depression. In the 1440s and 1450s, the total value of English trade declined by one third. As for any recession, there were many reasons behind this. But of most importance was domestic political instability and the weak and indecisive government that England had. This led to various uh, international conflicts and, of course, trade, which needs stable and secure conditions in which to flourish, um, just simply did not have that. So this is the man who was responsible for the chaos, um, Henry VI, And his loss of Normandy, uh, then conflicts with Denmark and a war with the Hansa, were compounded by uh, a ban on English cloth 
uh, imposed by Burgundy between 1447 and 1452. There was also, to make things worse, an acute shortage of silver coinage right the way across Europe, and this inhibited normal trading transactions severely, and in particular made it very difficult to get credit. At the same time as this sort of more or less economic meltdown was going on, the English crown's finances were in really terminal crisis. By 1449, the crown was £372,000 in debt. And this was in a period where its annual income was about £70,000 a year. Merchants were extremely reluctant to lend money to the king, suspecting, quite rightly, that they would never get it back. And so, in order to raise cash, the crown began to undermine the privileges of the city companies. And one of the most important of these privileges was the operation of the Calais staple. From 1314, all wool traded abroad had to be sold through a town designated as a staple. The reason for this was so that the crown could monitor the volume of trade and then tax it appropriately. But these staples soon benefited not only the crown, but also the merchants, because a group of them could band together and form a company that had a monopoly granted by the crown to operate the staple. So, from 1463, Calais, which is then, of course, an English town, was the English cloth staple run by a company of 26 merchant staplers. In the 1440s, Henry VI, desperate to make money, started to sell licenses to merchants to trade directly with Dutch cloth makers, bypassing the Calais staple and the staplers' markup. And this became typical of a series of interventions in the patterns of international trade taken by Henry VI to benefit the crown and uh, disadvantage the um, merchant community in the um, city. Now, looking at the 15th century, it does often seem incredibly complicated, the sort of political shenanigans that were going on. But actually, you know, the principles of government in 15th century England were much more straightforward than they might seem. More or less all sections of society held a mutual interest in strong monarchy with authority to lead and govern, to uphold justice, law and order. Because the, her the um, principle of um, hereditary monarchy was now universally accepted, this need to maintain law and order was undermined when there was a minority and might be undermined further if genetics threw up a, a king who was really incapable of effective rule. And in these circumstances, such as happened under uh, Henry VI, uh, people saw the job of the aristocracy as to show the king the way, to put the king back on the right track, to remove bad influences from being around him and help the king re-establish order. 
So in this way, monarchy in the 15th century was intensely personal. It relied on the character of the king and his ability to command uh, confidence, uh, trust and loyalty. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, under the weak kingship of Henry VI, with economic recession, defeat at war, financial mismanagement, corruption, and the arbitrary exercise of royal privilege, we see an increasing politicisation of society. The aristocracy jockeyed for position to try and either get the king to govern more effectively or to replace him, while the mercantile classes in the city would basically back whichever faction was most likely to create stable conditions for trade. And it was in this increasingly charged environment, this freebile political environment, that John Crosby learnt his trade. In July 1450, an uprising of disgruntled Kentish commons marched on London. They were led by Jack Cade. He gave his name to the rebellion, and he, at the time, styled himself Jack Amendall. Jack, fix it all. His complaint, which he put forward, is worth quoting, as it summarises a complaint with which the city merchants came to sympathise. And this is what his complaint was. We say our sovereign lord may understand that his false counsel has lost his law. His merchandise is lost. His common people destroyed. The sea is lost. France is lost. The king himself is so set that he may not pay for his own meat or drink. And he owes more than any king of England ought to. So instead of collaborating with the city, raising troops and fighting Cade and his rebels, as they approached London, Henry VI fled, leaving the city by itself to face off the Kentishmen alone. This, I would suggest, was a turning point in the relationship between the merchants and the city and the crown. The city oligarchy now knew that they were on their own. And with strengthening resolve, senior members of the merchant community began to act to safeguard their privileges and livelihoods. Prominent amongst these was John Crosby's master, John Young. He was elected an auditor of the city in 1449, and Young and his brother, who was a lawyer, Thomas, became key figures not only in Crosby's life, but in the politics of the city. Because Thomas Young, John Young's brother, the the, the brother of Crosby's master, who was MP for Bristol, was also the lawyer of Richard, Duke of York. And in 1451, together with the Duke, he devised a legal case to state that York was in fact the rightful heir to the throne of England, and that as Henry VI had no issue, the Duke should be recognised formally as the heir to the throne. And this case, put to Parliament by John Young, was accepted, um, and uh, uh, um, on its acceptance, um, the King was furious, 
and uh, Thomas Young was sent to the Tower of London. But the Duke of York's chance uh, to press this uh, um, formal recognition of his status came in the summer of 1453 when the king's mental health deteriorated and he was left in a state of catatonic schizophrenia. This is not a thing, ladies and gentlemen, that you want to have. It left him basically sitting uh, on his throne, staring into space, unable to speak, unable really to do um, anything very much. Despite uh, the Queen's attempt to grab the powers of government uh, in the name of uh, her newly born infant son, it was actually Richard of York who took the regency. And in the year in which he held power, uh, before Henry VI's recovery and resumption of power, York cracked down on alien merchants in the city and won more friends in the merchant community. So this is the political background to John Crosby's apprenticeship, a period in which he lived with John Young, who was one of the most important and loyal supporters of the Yorkist cause in the city. And so it is not remotely surprising that Crosby too became a strong supporter of the Duke of York as he assumed his independent life as a merchant and freeman. So let's return to his tomb in St Helens and let's look at this gold collar that he wears round his neck. Now we're very familiar with these gold collars, these chains of S's that were worn in the Tudor period, but uh, the Yorkists had um, a version themselves. And if when we look closely at this collar, we will see that it's made up of the two most important badges of the Lancastrian kingship. There is the white rose of Lancaster, uh, it's a white rose of York, um, and the, um, the, 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 star, the, the sunburst of, um, of York, the personal badge of um, uh, Edward Fourth. So John Crosby is lying there wearing the livery collar of King Edward IV. Well, of course, as we all know, it wasn't Richard, Duke of York, who was in the end to become the Yorkist king. It was his son, Edward, who, with the help of Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, Warwick the Kingmaker, um, saw him become king in 1461. Edward's a position on the throne was unsteady for a decade because uh, Henry VI was still alive. And in 1471, with the help of the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, and Warwick, the kingmaker, the enfeebled Henry VI was briefly restored to the throne. In the ensuing chaos, in which eventually Edward IV, of course, won back his crown, Sir John Crosby had his finest hour in an attempt upon the city of London by the marvellously named Bastard Falkenberg. Now, Thomas Falkenberg was one of the bastard sons of William Neville, the Earl of Kent, a very prominent Lancastrian aristocrat. The bastard was a seafarer, to be more precise, a gentleman pirate who succeeded in becoming the leader of a rebellion to unseat Edward IV, who had been restored to the throne in 1471. Falkenberg moved on London with a selection of his piratical followers and a sprinkling of troops who he had got from the English garrison at Calais. 
men from all over Kent joined uh, his army as he advanced on the city. But as he advanced on the city, he heard the news that Edward IV had pretty decisively defeated the Lancastrians at the battles first of Barnet and Tewkesbury. But nevertheless, he advanced towards uh, London to confront the citizens from across the river at Southwark. The mayor and the aldermen had received his letters asking for safe passage through the city and rejected them, not only fearing the chaos that these Kentish rebels would cause in the city, but actually having a genuine loyalty to Edward IV, who, after all, had just won two incredibly decisive battles over the Lancastrians. As cannons were removed from Falkenberg's ships and set up in Southwark, facing uh, the city, the citizenry uh, rallied to defend themselves, and they were in a very good position. Edward IV had left the Tower of London well-stocked with arms and ammunition, and two key uh, Yorkist commanders, Lord Dudley, the constable of the Tower, and Lord Rivers, the Earl of Essex, um, were in command of the troops. But absolutely crucially, and this is the crucial point, the city oligarchy, the aldermen, were strongly Yorkist. In matters of security, law and order, the sheriff of the city was in charge, having taken an oath on his uh, installation to defend the city and the county of Middlesex. And it was in this way that John Crosby, who was one of the two sheriffs, found himself in the forefront of the defence of the city against a genuine, real and effective attack. And the bastard's attack was on two, two fronts, two prongs. A direct assault on London Bridge and another from the east on Allgate. And while the attack on London Bridge was repulse, repulsed, Falkenberg's men actually managed to force through Allgate and were only driven off by a concerted counter-attack led from the city. In the end, it was a rout. Falkenberg's men, uh, fleeing for their lives, chased by the enraged Londoners. Seven days later, Edward IV entered London to great rejoicing, and John Crosby was amongst the aldermen who was knighted for their bravery in securing the city against the Lancastrian rebels. Now, all of this is absolutely vital in understanding Crosby and his building ambitions. Let's return once again to his tomb in St. Helens. If we're to compare this effigy that we've studied quite closely now with the memorial laid down to a wealthy vintner, Simon Seaman, who was buried in 1433 and whose brass image survives in St. Mary's Church in Barton-upon-Humber, we can see what the typical self-image of a 15th century merchant was. He here is dressed in his long, rich gown as a civilian. He stands not on an aggressive lion, but on two wine kegs. Around him are not, I mean, you can't really see this actually, but are not heraldic badges, but, um, his, uh, but shields containing his uh, merchant's mark. We also have this remarkable album in the Guildhall showing water watercolours of 26 aldermen during the morality of the mercer John Olney in 1446-50. These men in their aldermanic robes 
are how rich merchants at Crosby's times uh, were portrayed. Crosby was different. He, in fact, uh, the, the fact is, is that very few London merchants had been knighted in the 14th century. Not even the great Richard Whittington, who was much richer than many knights, achieved or perhaps even wanted a knighthood. This situation drastically changed under Edward IV. The king knighted aldermen at both his and his queen's coronation, and after the Battle of Tewkesbury, when he came back to London after the bastard had been uh, defeated, he knighted 12 aldermen, including Crosby. And so at a stroke, half of the aldermanic court were knights. In fact, it's from the reign of Edward IV that, that the tradition, still going today, um, of knighting uh, the, mayor, uh, uh, the Lord Mayor of London actually starts. So whilst this unquestionably represented Edward's um, gratitude to the aldermen for their support, it also represents an increased appetite amongst the city elite to be seen as knights. So Crosby at first did not uh, build a house. He leased one. Uh, this is uh, Bishopsgate. Uh, he leased one from this institution here, which was the nunnery of St. Helen's um, uh, uh, Bishopsgate. And amazingly, that big chunk of the nunnery survives today. Here is the church. Uh, Crosby's tomb is about here. It's a very, very unusual church because it's got two aisles. Uh, this aisle here was the nun's aisle, and here is the nunnery. This was the parish aisle, um, which is the parish church right next door to it. Um, and that is reflected in the uh, facade of the church you can see today. Here is the nun's door, and here is the, the parish door. And it is from this, uh, this, this nunnery that Crosby rents a house. Here, the, the, the church I've just shown you is over here. Here is Bishopsgate. And here is the land that uh, Sir John Crosby takes on a lease of 99 years um, from the, the, the prioress in 1466. Um, it, it, it didn't have a street frontage. Uh, like the other houses I showed you, you entered it through a little um, alleyway. Uh, he had six tenements, six shops, which Crosby owned. He used those for um, uh, rental purposes. Um, but behind those shops was his house, the main part of which was the Great Hall, which we've already seen. Um, here is an Elizabethan drawing showing the Great Lantern on top of the Great Hall. And here is what it looked like in uh, Bishop's Great Gate. Uh, with its bay window, these very densely packed uh, uh, um, windows, um, and this uh, building at right angles to it. Inside, it's a magnificent uh, uh, roof, a barrel-vaulted roof, which we'll talk about in a, few, a little bit more in a moment. Um, and you can see from a, a, an antiquarian drawing here the way these pendants drop down. Very, very fashionable feature, pendants just invented in the 1460s when this hall is, is, is built. Um, uh, and you can see another view of the uh, interior here with these high windows and this plain wall here designed for the hanging of tapestry. So at right angles to the hall here was a two-storey building. On the ground floor of this was the great parlour and on the first floor was the great chamber. And uh, here you see um, a view of that building at right angles uh, with the 
damage at the end here, so you can see the great, uh, uh, the great ceiling. Um, first floor, great uh, uh, um, chamber. The ground floor, parlor. And um, here you see uh, the staircase in plan. Uh, so here's the hall. Um, this, is a, this wall's taken out at a later date, but here is the hall. The door through here to the parlor. This is the ceiling of the parlor you're looking at. And a staircase leading up. And uh, you can see in this cross section, here is the great hall, the parlor on the ground floor, and the uh, great chamber on the first floor with this wonderful you know, elaborate ceiling. By the time this drawing's done, it's lost its bay windows, but you can see in this uh, drawing, there's that fantastic ceiling, the floor's disappeared, upper floor, the great chamber, the, 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 the ground floor, the parlor, with these big bay windows looking out into the uh, courtyard. Now, at first sight, this building looks a bit like those three-room merchants' houses that I was talking about before Christmas. Now, a, oops. A, a, a great hall, um, a parlour for um, public entertaining, and a room above uh, in which you would sleep. Just three rooms, which is basically what happened before the 15th century. But this house is a lot bigger than that, because this uh, uh, part here... Uh, was essentially like a sort of series of state rooms. The rest of the house was over here. Um, another courtyard, a series of rooms, and a whole court at the back containing um, kitchens and other um, uh, ancillary um, buildings. Um, and what you see here is an antiquarian survey showing the, the vaults that existed underneath the rest of Crosby's house, that were discovered as a redevelopment went um, on. And as far as we know, uh, his best rooms would have been in this um, southern uh, uh, range here, um, uh, so his eastern range here, overlooking his gardens. Uh, and there was a, a back gate here through which uh, his um, service quarters could be, um, uh, could be stocked. So if you came to visit him, you'd come in through here. You'd go into the state rooms or you'd go into his private rooms here. Um, and if you were servicing it, you'd come in through the back. And here is uh, a drawing of that back gate as it survived. Now, unfortunately, we don't actually know who designed this great building. Uh, but we do know that it's extremely similar to this building here. In fact, looking at this, you almost think you are looking at Crosby Hall. This is, in fact, Edward IV's Great Hall at Eltham, built between 1475 and 1483. Um, and uh, you can visit this uh, hall today. It's in the uh, care of English heritage. And it was designed by the King's Office of Works, in which the Master Mason and the Master Carpenter had to coordinate their design and um, construction. Probably in the lead was Edward's master mason, Thomas Jordan, uh, who first comes to notice uh, building Eton College in the 1440s, but then gets one of the plum jobs in the city of London and becomes the chief mason and engineer for London Bridge. Um, Edward's uh, master carpenter uh, was responsible for building this incredible roof inside uh, the Eltham Great Hall. Uh, he was Edmund Gravely, and he, like Jordan, uh, was a city man, a member, indeed, a warden of the uh, Carpenters 
company. And if we look at this great royal hall in relation to what we have surviving of Sir John Crosby's hall, and we compare their elevations, and I'm afraid you can't photograph these two so they're straight on, you will see the incredibly similar treatment of these hood moulds, the way the moulds in the windows actually touch each other all the way along, this very tight fenestration. There are when you look at the rest of the building, there's very similar base plinth. The parapets are extremely similar. Um, they're both faced with stone, and they have a, a brick core, actually, inside. And when you look inside the building, and this is a drawing of the, 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 the uh, bay window in Crosby Hall, the mouldings used on it are exactly the same mouldings uh, that are the ones that are used at um, Elton. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that John Crosby would have known Thomas uh, Jordan, uh, the, the mason. And uh, it's very likely, given their close relationship, that Edward IV would have lent his own mason to Sir John Crosby to build his own house. Because the two halls, in terms of the masonry, certainly, are basically brother and sister. But what about this remarkable ceiling? I mean, it really is a remarkable ceiling. Well, again, I think it's quite possible that Edmund Gravely, the king's carpenter, um, actually was responsible for designing this. Because although at first sight these two ceilings look very, very different, they have a fundamental um, similarity, which is they both are actually decorative ceilings. This ceiling you see here is not a structural ceiling. The, the, the roof is actually held up by a great A truss, which you see here. That's what's holding the ceiling up. All this is basically decorative um, work. And this is exactly what we have at Crosby Hall. This is not a, a structural ceiling in any way. It is, in fact, um, a decorative covering. The uh, roof is actually held up with a great truss, and you can see the way in this cross section shows that the ceiling is basically um, hanging from this great truss. And this is really the first time, uh, as far as we know, that these ceilings are made to be decorative rather than structural. And it does seem that um, Gravely, Edmund Gravely, the king's uh, mason, is the mastermind behind developing this new sort of ceiling with uh, its um, suspension and these pendants which come down um, in both, because of course there are pendants on, on, on here as well, which are a completely new feature which you don't see in, in, earlier, um, in earlier roofs. Now, I'm afraid it's... Um, uh, unlikely that we will never certainly know that Crosby Hall was, in fact, designed by the king's uh, masons. But um, I think if we look again at the, uh, the, 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 the plan of this house, we do see something else which does begin to suggest to me that there is uh, some sort of royal involvement here. Because what you essentially have at Crosby Hall is a sort of state suite that is completely separate from the rest of his house. A suite of rooms with this incredible great hall, the parlour and the great chamber, of unbelievable magnificence that can be used completely separate from the residence of uh, Crosby um, himself. And so it could have been that Crosby Hall 
could have been intended to be used rather like an Elizabethan country house. So that you have um, on call the whole time this incredibly uh, magnificent set of rooms that are set aside for special um, occasions whilst the owner of the house himself lives in a separate area. And what is extremely interesting is that after John Crosby's death, this is more or less exactly how Crosby Place was used because it became a sort of Yorkist headquarters where Richard, Duke of York, the future Richard III, was actually based. In fact, uh, he was based uh, in these rooms um, here when he made his bid for the throne. And in fact, Shakespeare, who was a local boy, brought up on Bishopsgate, and who would have known uh, Crosby Place very, very well, sets several scenes in his play, Richard III, in the house. In fact, Crosby Place was later to become the home of another fabulously rich city merchant, Sir Bartholomew Reed, a goldsmith. He became the owner in 1501, and in fact, he celebrated his mayoral feast in the Great Hall the following year, um, and apparently this feast was uh, attended by over a, a hundred people who, we're told by the chroniclers, uh, were too many to fit into the goldsmith's hall. Henry VII, uh, after this incredible feast, asked uh, Reed whether the house could be used by the ambassador from Burgundy, who had arrived the same year. And the huge Burgundian embassy was received in London in great state, and the ambassador lodged at Crosby Hall. Whether Reed was in residence in the, in, in the South Wing, we, we don't know. But hold on for a moment. We're talking here of a house belonging to a merchant, not a member of the aristocracy. Surely this was extraordinarily presumptuous, this architectural statement we are looking at here. But we have again and again to return to Sir John's tomb. And remember that this was not a man who wanted to be memorialised as a businessman. He wanted to be remembered as a member of the knightly classes, a man who went to his grave wearing the king's own livery collar. In fact, Crosby represents the start of a completely new sort of mercantile class of super-rich mer merchants who were closely aligned with the crown. Crosby went on to be chosen by Edward IV as an ambassador to the Duke of Burgundy to negotiate commercial trade treaties. He then became the mayor of Calais, an absolutely critical post, not only because of its value in controlling the staple, but because royal control of the garrison at Calais was one of the most important strategic posts in England. The loss of loyalty in the garrison could turn it into a beachhead for an invasion of England. So Crosby was used as an ultra-loyal royal fixer, a man of business, but also, much more importantly, a man of state. And when we look at the two other Bishopsgate merchants with whom I started this evening, we see that they very much fit this pattern. Thomas Gresham was not only a merchant, he was a royal financial agent and uh, an advisor to all the Tudor monarchs from the 1540s. Like Crosby, he was entrusted with important diplomatic missions 
and managed to be fiercely loyal during the twists and turns of the mid-Tudor succession crisis. His house in Bishopsgate was visited by Queen Elizabeth, who famously died, uh, died, dined there before the opening of the Royal Exchange in 1571. Gresham was also an unwilling host to Lady Mary Grey, the sister to the unfortunate Queen of Nine Days, Lady Jane Grey. On Elizabeth's orders, Mary was kept under house arrest in Gresham's house for over three years. Paul Pinder, who we saw uh, living in Bishopsgate without, uh, uh, he, like Crosby and Gresham, spent huge amount of time abroad. He became James I's ambassador to Constantinople. He um, underlined his own uh, indispensableness to King Charles I by his massive personal loans to the crown. Um, he advanced to Charles I in all some £93,000 in 1638-9, to uh, £8,000 of which was for a large pendant diamond that the king bought in 1638. You'd have thought Charles I had more in his mind than buying diamonds, but anyway, let's uh, draw a veil over that. This Sir Paul, observed uh, Sir Edmund Rossingham, never fails the king when he is in most need. So, ladies and gentlemen, Crosby, Gresham and Pinder are a different sort of merchant to those who I was describing last week. These men succeeded in dissolving the social boundaries around trade. They had bank balances, houses and appointments equivalent to any aristocrat, and they perceived themselves much more, as much more than traders or bankers. And their houses confirmed this, and in particular, Crosby Place, which is virtually uh, a royal palace in its pretensions. Well, next time uh, I will be talking uh, about a royal palace, but not in a narrow sense. I'll be looking at how St James's Palace, once like St Helen's Bishopsgate, a nunnery, became the kernel around which London's West End grew. I hope, ladies and gentlemen, that you will join me then. Thank you. <laughs>